Kazakhstan, a country about which most of us Americans know very little, was in the news this month. And that actually established a situation in which, on the one hand, the government is saying something relatively logical, relatively, you know, um, something that makes sense. But people at the bottom knew that our market is not competitive, that the majority of assets are actually controlled by the elites. And immediately they started shouting this thing called Shalket. And that means old man, get out. Did you know? that in Kazakhstan, even people who own luxury cars, such as Hummers and Bentleys, provide taxi services as a sidekick. Ostensibly, this is an interesting fact to remember about Kazakhstan. But as Professor Tutomlu tells us about her homeland, this fact is a symbol of deeply entrenched problems in Kazakhstan, such as oligarchy, nepotism, corruption, poverty, and much more, problems that led to open, widespread uprising and the presence of foreign troops. Hey there, news peelers. Today is January 21, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the Peel Dot News is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Verbal sparring between heads of states and diplomats make for dramatic news. One such an incident occurred just two weeks ago. The U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, said this, One lesson in recent history is that once Russians are in your house, it's sometimes very difficult to get them to leave. Russia's foreign minister responded by posting the following statement. When Americans are in your house, it may be difficult to stay alive, not to be robbed or violated. Oh boy. Well, thank goodness we're not here to talk about U.S.-Russian relations. These statements were made in the context of Russia's troop presence in Kazakhstan. By the way, Russia's troops are leaving Kazakhstan which more or less negates Secretary Blinken's statement. Regardless, the news about Kazakhstan came and went. That's not that unusual. Us Americans have limited attention spans and often minimal interest in news about other countries, unless they directly and immediately impact our lives here at home. But when it comes to Kazakhstan, there is one more reason 
why we don't hear much about this large Central Asian country in our news. For example, about its human rights record. As Professor Asel Tutomlu explains in this episode, Kazakhstan works very hard to maintain its image abroad. She has written extensively about Kazakhstan, her homeland, and is a professor in the Department of Economics and Administrative Sciences at the Near East University in Turkey, from where she joins us for this conversation. To learn more about Professor Tutomlu and her work, visit her academic homepage, the link for which, as well as links for several of her publications, are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Tutomlu and I peel the history behind this news. The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Tutomlu, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. After a gas price increase, Kazakhstan suddenly erupted into a mass uprising. Can you put this news development into perspective for us? I mean, there's got to be more to this story than just gas price increases, right? No, absolutely. So basically what was happening is that Kazakhstan is the ninth largest country in the world. And by by area, okay. Yes, by area. So we are the size approximately of Western Europe. And we are very rich in natural resources. So I'm sorry, uh, by by we, are are you, are you Kazakh yourself? Yes. I am oh, wonderful. Okay, and cool. I have the Kazakh citizenship. Oh, wonderful. Well, we will discuss <laughs> yes, and my, later. And my parents and my friends and family, they all live there. Oh, wow. So this is like so the reason, I mean, the reason why, why I'm in Turkey is because, you know, of a husband who is a Turkish citizen. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that. We'll talk about Oz, uh, Kazakh ethnicity and nationality in a moment. So basically in this rich country with a very small amount of people. So we are 19, 19 million people. Uh, with the huge natural resources. Um, 19 million people, that's that, very low density, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, especially in comparison with China, for example, because oh, wow. yeah. in China, so here's the thing, like just for you to, to have a concept, you have 1.7 person per square kilometer. And I know that in the US, you don't use a kilometer. Um, so kilometer is, I that's fine. The analogy go 1000 meters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and so in China, um, in China, the, the average density is 100,000 people per square kilometer. What is it in, Af- in uh, Kazakhstan is, again? Say the number 1. again 1.7 person <laughs> per <laughs> versus 100, 1.7 versus 100,000. Wow. Yeah. And China adds basically 19 million people a year. And that's the size of Kazakhstan a year to the population. And you have all these natural resources. Wow. Exactly. And 
As a result of that, many people thought, well, we are a big country territorially, small population, the resources should be shared. So we were thinking at the beginning of our independence in 1991 uh, that generally we will be able to have some kind of you know, decent uh, standards of living. And instead what was happening, um, we had a president who stayed in power for nearly 30 years and uh, he stepped down voluntarily in 2019, um, giving the power to a person who he kind of selected, handpicked, and uh, they ruled in tandem, where um, President Nazarbayev, this long-term uh, leader, um, who was in power for 30 years, still kept very important places. Um, for example, he was the lifelong senator, lifelong chair of the uh, Security Council. He had all kinds of privileges. He called himself the uh, father of the nation, uh, Yelbasse. And uh, that he, actually... He renamed the capital after himself. I love that. Well, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. Uh, the capital was renamed by his um, by his handpicked successor, oh, and it happened okay. the next day when he got the power, just to show how loyal President Tokayev as a thank as a thank you token. <laughs> exactly. So all of that was very, you know, thirty years after people were looking at all of that and they were thinking that okay, Nazarbayev is leaving in two thousand nineteen. There has to be some change, but change didn't happen. Instead, you had uh, Nazarbayev, his family and friends and associates controlled the majority of economic assets. And they have controlled, um, together with foreign investors, by the way, some of whom are uh, American citizens and Western, uh, uh, have all kinds of uh, various um, affiliations. Um, uh, basically, they distributed the rents among themselves. So with the help of political and economic power, you had a kind of a, a relatively insulated elite who operated based on the um, decisions, let's say, uh, that may be very informal uh, of President Nazarbayev, uh, how exactly and who gets what in Kazakhstan. At the same time, you had people who were living at a, at a very low at, at a kind of a low level of survival, let's say. Um, they, their salaries were very close to poverty. Um, some of them were called self-employed if they were, for example, uh, selling something in the bazaars or they were uh, selling some vegetables that they grew in their private gardens. So these people were not even eligible for any welfare from the state. And there were many of them. And as a result of that, Many of these people who were so disadvantaged in these economic conditions without having capacity and possibility of engaging in some kind of um, entrepreneurship or in opening up the businesses because everything was controlled by the elites, the most lucrative businesses were controlled by the elites. Like an oligarchy. Um, Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that basically, so it wasn't meritocratic system at all. And as a result of that, um, they engaged in taxi services. And it's very interesting. I think I haven't actually seen it in many other countries, um, but in uh, around Kazakhstan, it's very easy to get a cab. You just go on the street, you raise your hand, the car, any car would stop. I mean, I've had a Hummer stop and wanted to take me for a ride for money. What that implies is that sometimes when people don't have cash, they would just simply ride around the city and pick up residents and get them to whatever they need to be for a little piece of cash. 
Hummer is an expensive car. You would think the owner of such a oh, vehicle yeah. would, would not need to do this. And you know why this happens? Because of uh, bribery and corruption. So if people cannot get paid, they get paid with some um, material goods. And so a person, for example, instead of cash, gets a car, and then they don't necessarily know what to do with it because it's very expensive to service it, and it's very expensive to, to ride it. And so they then end up, you know, driving and actually serving as a cab. I mean, I can tell you many stories like that. I mean, we have had Bentley parked in my parents' uh, apartment building. And that's, again, because the guy uh, uh, did something for uh, a group of uh, financial industrial group. And uh, he got paid by Bentley. And the guy, poor guy, could not even sell it. Um, oh, wow. it's well, that's the reason I don't have a Bentley and a Hummer. I just wouldn't know what to do with it. <laughs> Otherwise, um, yeah. Um, I, so I wanna... just, just, just to finish with the cabs, okay? Sure. Just to finish with the first uh, uh, thing. So a lot of these people, um, they had very bad, so to say, old cars that they would tweak um, for towards the cheaper fuel, which was the LPG, the liquefied petroleum gas. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it still exists in the United States. Um, and when these gas prices increased tremendously, twice, I mean, they really doubled overnight, the people basically found themselves without the second stream of income. And that created a condition in which some people were so dismayed that they came out and said, well, I mean, this is impossible. How can we survive like this? this now like you're taking these yeah, opportunity for us, from us. You know, now we cannot really oh, have the second stream of living. And as a result of that, they came out. And then so many other people came out because in solidarity, even if they had the diesel or benzene car, uh, the regular gasoline, uh, it didn't really matter anymore. And when the government said, guys, you know, it doubled because we are moving towards the digital platforms. And the digital platform now will set up the price based on the, uh, on the stock exchange. Uh, and the reason why the prices increased is because of international rise in energy prices. And the workers didn't really believe that. And the reason why, because the majority of price prices are actually controlled by, uh, in energy sector, are controlled by people who are affiliated with Nazarbayev's regime, and particularly with his uh, son-in-law. And that actually established a situation in which, on the one hand, the government is saying something relatively logical, relatively, you know, um, something that makes sense. But people at the bottom knew that our market is not competitive, that the majority of assets are actually controlled by the elites. And immediately they started shouting this thing called shalket. And that means old man, get out. And this particular idea of old men get out implied that they wanted to get rid of the system in which they are no longer needed, right? They no longer can penetrate the wall of getting any benefit from the system with the elites being so insulated from the needs of people. And then it started to appear all over the country. I know that Kazakhstan is not exactly a democracy. You just share that with us. But how we have a very good image. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you do, particularly I mean, for, Mr. for Mr. Putin and Russia, right? <laughs> you have a good. <laughs> no, 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 no. 
we have a very good image, even in the United States. I mean, we are actually hiring a lot of your PR companies and, and lawyers and lobbyists to have that image. Um, and we are not the only one. I'm sorry, like many other <laughs> regimes are, are indeed. Really? So yes. to, to project this, this uh, good image internationally for the country? Absolutely. Yeah, that we are kind of an enlightened dictatorship. And the K Street lawyers actually get pretty good sum of money from my government in DC. Well, how long has that been going on? Since forever. Since since Kazakhstan became an independent country. Since yeah, probably. Well, the, the thing is, the authoritarian uh, grip started to harden around two thousand. And so I'm thinking probably since 2000 something up until today. That's probably one reason why we don't hear about Kazakhstan that much. In and our not news. only you, I mean, a lot of people are very shocked in the West because we are, I mean, my government is very much concerned with the uh, image abroad because our model of growth, growth model was based on foreign direct investments. And that implies that obviously, we need to ensure that we are pro-market, that we are uh, uh, basically uh, uh, guaranteeing stability of investments, that we have very nice taxes uh, and tax regimes, uh, and we even use British law in our contracts with foreign investors. So we are pro-market. Uh, what what percentage of investors in... Oh, pardon me, go ahead. No, it's just that we are pro-market, but politically dictatorial. <laughs> we have been. I, I want to ask about the dictatorship, but I want to go back to your references to American PR companies and lawyers. And earlier, you talked mm -hmm. about American investors. What percentage of investment in uh, Kazakhstan would you guess is from the United States of America? So um, I wouldn't be able to separate American investors from the European ones because they come in consortiums. Um, okay. And usually it's a common practice in um in, in oil and gas industry, um, just to diversify the risks, and also because it's a, it's a, it's a backloaded industry, which means that uh, investors need to put a lot of money in the front, mm -hmm. and then uh, slowly get their get their returns later. Um, so they usually form consortiums, and consortiums cre are created from private enterprises, um, but many of them are actually Western. Um, so we have like a consortium uh, of Exxon, BP, and Shell, something like that. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. So that's why it would be difficult to separate the um, uh, the investors and say how many exactly are they from the United States. But Kazakhstan did something smart. We actually knew that the um, reserves are very important to us uh, and to the world. <laughs> so instead of uh, putting all the golden eggs in one basket, we decided to diversify. So we invited Americans and Europeans. We gave a little bit to China. We gave a little bit to Russia. And so now every single country, so the West, and I'm sorry lumping for lumping them in together, um, okay. for just for the purpose of the conversation, um, the Russians and the Chinese, they have approximately the equal share with Kazakhstan controlling only 22% of our natural resources. The rest of- I didn't much. follow that. You said China and Russia have approximately equal shares with- United uh, States and or the with, West. Okay. And who's controlling 20%? Kazakhstan, the government itself. So 80% of natural resources are controlled by... Uh, by foreigners. 
Wow. Okay. I can ask so many questions. I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I want to go back to the image uh, problem or the good image mm -hmm. that Kazakhstan has been able to project with the help of uh, Western uh, PR firms. What's Kazakhstan's human rights record? And I want to separate it from the drama of the recent uprising going back in the last uh, 10 years, 20 years. What has it been like? Well, it's been, um, how would I call it, uh, in a kind of a politically correct manner. They've, in 30 years, let's say, they've managed to clear up any opposition or political parties or political figures. But they've done it in a way that did not require um, massive amounts of people to be locked up or to be... Uh, a, a, to, to neutralized. <laughs> I don't know oh, how to use the better term. No, no, I'm, I'm trying <laughs> to decide. We... They didn't have to engage in, in, in actual, you know, like political killings, for example. Even though there were a couple of opposition um, leaders who were indeed killed, um, but they couldn't find the killers. But all the... Um, um, all the uh, basically roots tells tells us that well tell us that uh, it's probably the government who did it. Uh, they just don't necessarily acknowledge it. So, so to distinguish it from, um, let's say China, there are not. Mm -hmm. It's not a case that there are mass incarcerations in Kazakhstan. They've exactly. been able to quell uh, uh, any any protests or any uh, other parties uh, quash them with. Other means that are, you know, perhaps exactly. assassinations or what? What you're suggesting? Uh, there were only two known assassinations, but we don't know if the government was involved. Obviously, yeah. Um, but uh, for the rest of the leaders, they managed to either co-op them, either extradite them to different other countries, or um, basically silence them. And they can silence them legally or informally or threaten. So in that sense, it was relatively better in comparison to other countries in Central Asia. And I think that's what they managed, uh, helped the regime, you know, to have that image. Um, because, I mean, we never boiled our political prisoners alive like Karimov's regime, or at least this is what, what uh, the leaks, so to say, said. I mean, we've never engaged in this atrocity. Boiled alive? Uh, what, uh, yes. what country is this? Kar Karimov? Uzbekistan. 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 Oh, that's right. Yes, Under Karimov's yes. regime. Yeah. Um, or, for example, we we never made uh, sure that if you were in opposition, your whole family disappears or your clan disappears, like in Turkmenistan. We were relatively civil, you know. We were much more humane in dealing with the opposition. But at the end, we got kind of a similar outcome. So this oppression or oligarchy or dictatorship is yeah. still managed in the background by Nazarbayev, right? Yes, and his, his associates. It's kind of similar including to... Including family members. Including family Well, one part of it is similar to Putin, where Putin left and put Medvedev in charge. Uh, I don't know. Yes. If, yeah, I don't know if Nazarbayev is going to come back or not, but that's interesting. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about who are Kazakhs and what are Russia's special interests in Kazakhstan? Did you know? 
that three of the largest Russian Orthodox churches are not in Russia, they are in Ukraine. And did you know that Russia's claim to Ukraine is based in part on a treaty that dates back to 1654? To listen to these podcast conversations, just click the link for our post-Soviet States podcast series in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Professor Tutomlu. Professor Tutomlu, President Putin of Russia said that, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but he said that Kazakhs had never had statehood and has referred to Kazakhstan as an artificial state. I mean, what gifts? Where, where, where is he getting this from? What's the basis for this? Well, basically, um, it's a broken imperial ego. Um, and it plays out in so many ways, actually. Um, historically speaking, the Turkic world, um, of course, didn't have the statehood as we know it as a Westphalian state of 1648, you know, where we had territory government, nation, specific type of uh, people with the same linguistic, cultural particularities, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's well, that was not really existing, but we did have a very strong kind of empires. And these empires, the Turkic, uh, uh, various Turkic um, empires called Ardag, like Golden Horde, you call them mm -hmm. hordes, yeah. they actually controlled a lot of Slavic-speaking populations. And um, there has been research done by not only uh, Central Asian scholars, but from scholars abroad, who has been pointing out that actually a lot of Turkic world and a lot of Turkic traditions, a lot of Turkic worldview has actually um, has actually influenced the the Russian uh, culture, Russian language, um, Russian uh, ideals uh, about themselves and what they think. And unfortunately, um, with the colonial, uh, uh, I mean, Russia got stronger. Um, and China got stronger in the region when the nomadic empires no longer were competitive and compatible. Um, it started to dominate with a relatively strong um, kind of, I wouldn't say um, missionic mission, uh, with, with a kind of civil, civilizing mission. Um, so they came to Central Asia. Your messianic um, mission on the part of Russia and Europeans? Yes. Okay. On, 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 on the part of Russia. Mm -hmm. So they were coming to uh, to Central Asia, and basically they were seeing you know, nomadic hordes that were still very much tribal, that were still very much um, you know traditional at the same time. And as a result of that, there was uh, a whole scholarship that began to appear, um, thinking that these people were so backward, and so and these people you mean people Kazakh the, in Central Asia, yeah, yeah. Uh, the that uh, they had to be developed in some way or another. Um, and so the Russian Empire couldn't really have full control for a quite a long time over the territories, even though it tried. And the really kind of a full control over Central Asia came up with the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union came, um, it, by 1923, it had enough control to now parcel down Central Asia into what it calls republics. Um, and so these republics were created completely artificially because obviously nomadic, nomadic 
um, empires, they didn't have, uh, it was the oral history, right? An oral regime. And yeah. therefore, uh, we didn't have anything in writing or in the docu documented, so to say, in sources. Um, and as a result of that, um, it gave the um, uh, an opportunity for various other sources, external sources, to talk about us and classify us in a certain way. Um, and Russian ethnographers were coming in and they were basically deciding what should be the nature of Kazakh language vis-a-vis -vis the Kyrgyz language, even though it was one Turkic language um, with different dialects. And so you now have these languages that are codified, that, are, that have certain phonemes that sounded nicely to the, or appropriate to the Russian linguists. Uh, and they have uh, codified, established the traditions of which traditions are particularly Kazakh, Kyrgyz versus Uzbek or Turkmen or Tajik. And um, that has continued throughout the Soviet Union. Uh, so the borders were fake. The borders didn't include, for example, the nations. And now you have a situation in which you have enclaves of people living, ethnic dif ethnically different people living within the territory of another state. And they have the passports, not of that state, but of the foreign state. So does that apply that, to the large Russian uh, population that lives in Kazakhstan? Do they have Russian passports or uh, do they have Kazakh passports? But some of them do, but uh, usually they have Kazakh passports. So the situation is that during the Soviet times, um, basically Soviet Union wanted to, because we, we were considered backward in their eyes, they wanted to bring people from what we call the European part of the Soviet Union, it's Russia, Belarus, uh, or Ukraine, to develop our infrastructure, uh, welfare system, healthcare, and so on. Um, and so that means by 1991, when we became independent, there were only 40% of Kazakhs living in Kazakhstan, uh, and the rest of the 60% were Slavic speaking. Or oh, Slavic, wow. That's so Slavic yeah, Kazakhs were mi a minority within their own In land. their own state. Yes. Yes. And did, so that leaves that the opportunity. a security to issue for Kazakh, ethnic Kazakhs in their own country? Uh, not anymore. We, we actually managed. To, in 30 years, we managed to uh, multiply. And so we have been, we, we, we've kind of reversed the, 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 the situation now. So we have uh, 60, I think 67% of Kazakhs and uh, only 18% awesome. of Kazakhs. Only 18% of Russians left. But I just have to tell you that it's not really about, you know, I mean, I think it's a mistake to actually uh, codify that Kazakhs are against Russians or the Russians in Kazakhstan are pro-Russia. Many of them maybe are, but when they go to Russia, they realize that they're actually neither Russians nor completely Kazakh. There's someone in between because they have accumulated so many traditions that are completely not Russian and they cannot really communicate with ethnically, you know, Russian Russians because they seem to be very rude and very, yeah, very difficult to be, to talk to. <laughs> that, was a, that was a very soft swipe, Edward. <laughs> <laughs> um, so won't, wouldn't uh, President Putin's uh, statements about supposed lack of statehood or history of a statehood mm -hmm. for Kazakhstan, does that, does that 
incite some sort of strife between uh, Russian Cossacks and Cossack Cossacks. I hope I'm saying that. I'm trying to yes. distinguish. <laughs> yeah. Does that ca cause any acrimony, division? Uh, it, there are some people who try to use it, mm -hmm. let's say. Um, and when uh, Kazakh Russians, they, they hear that, of course, they are concerned. Um, and in addition to that, many people live and go to Russia because um, it, it creates better opportunities. Uh, so you don't have to know, for example, the Kazakh language in there. Um, the retirement age is earlier. The salaries are relatively higher. Uh, there are more job opportunities um, for, for the people. And there are obviously cheaper universities. I mean, you can actually get a decent education in the Russian system uh, rather than, for example, um, getting through uh, a good education in Kazakhstan. You mentioned... Um people uh, immigrate out of uh, Kazakhstan because, they, you know, in Russia, they don't have to know the Kazakh language. Um, I noted in some of the things that I've uh, come across, uh, have been reading that uh, Kazakhstan is scheduled to change its alphabet from Cyrillic to Latin. Uh, yes. I, I, and I recall many years ago, correct me if I'm wrong, Azerbaijan did the same thing. Uh, Yes. Uh, Saudi Arabia was really pushing them, Azerbaijan, to pick up uh, Arabic uh, alphabet. And then <laughs> is this Turkey's influence that uh, Latin won out or is it just the business world? So here's the thing. I think it's actually maybe both. I mean, there are multiple stories going on with the alphabet. Um, mm -hmm. Remember the Turkic language that existed before the Soviets came out? Um, was uh, basically the common language of the Turkic people. And strategically speaking, it was very interesting to see that initially everyone used Arabic. So before 1923, basically everyone used Arabic to express Turkic, Turkic language. And that's going from Turkey all the way to Xinjiang in China. So that was one So parts of northern speech. India. Northern, no, that's western China. Xinjiang no, I said there were parts of uh, the remnants ah. of the Mongol oh, yeah, Empire yeah, yeah. that spoke Turkic, yes. Sure. So we all used this Arabic script. Then uh, there was a revolution, if you remember, after the civil war in Turkey. And so in 1925, right, Turkey actually shifts to Latin. And what is yes. interesting, Central Asia also decides to shift to Latin to follow Turkey. And then Soviet Union comes in in 1936 and says, guys, this is not working. You are going to <laughs> this have is not so working for us <laughs> Yes. So we are going to basically change it to Cyrillic. And as a result of that, here's the thing. In Xinjiang, people still use Arabic script to express Turkic language. We have used and still do um, uh, Cyrillic script. And then Turkey uses Latin script. And as a result of that, this humongous amount of people with common history and common language are now divided because they cannot really understand each other. And the reason why um, Kazakhstan wanted, I think, to shift to the Latin language, because it enables the people to then understand, for example, how to read other languages that are expressed in, in Latin as well, and be a bit more, um, not necessarily that insulated, right? A bit more worldly, so yeah. to say, where you can yeah. read something else. Uh, because you now understand the language and it can prompt the youth to actually then 
go and study, for example, abroad or study a different language outside of just Kazakh or English. Also, it helps to sort of get them out of the uh, Russian orbit of influence if they they have a different type of alphabet that uh, syncs better with uh, European uh, and American. Sure, but but the thing is that businesses. I think the government was very careful. I think the government was relatively careful in um, ensuring and always stressing the the value of trilingualism. Trilingualism, yes. No, no, <laughs> so, yeah. They were, they were basically stressing that you need to know not only Kazakh or Russian, but also English. And these three languages were very important for the government programs in general. So they, were, they always stressed that it's not just Russian. It's not just Cyrillic. I mean, they said we want to actually our population to learn Russian and to know Russian because yeah. that's competitive advantage. Before we close this uh, segment, uh, I wanted to make sure that we're pronouncing the name Kazakh properly, because there's another Kazakh that we're familiar with, uh, C-O-S-S. Cossacks. Cossacks. There you go. Yeah. I've, um, when when you listen online to different uh, videos, they always say Kazakh, but it's Cossacks. And Kazakhstan is Kazakhs. In English, yes, yes. <laughs> not 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 in other languages. Okay, that's clarified. Yes, that's... Let me just let me just say let me just say that because um, the thing is in Russian. I mean, in English, it's e- easy to make this distinction: Kazakhs versus Cossacks, right? Yeah. But in Russian, it sounds relatively similar because uh, Kazakh, Kazaki, right? Kazakhs. These are Cossacks, but Kazakh with h at the end. These are the Kazakhs. They, they, okay, they so Kazakhs <laughs> from <laughs> Kazakhstan. You. you uh, has a <laughs> K-H as in a H sound. Something yes, like, uh, exactly. Okay. Interesting. Yes. Do you speak Russian? Obviously. Uh, yes. You do. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back after a short break to talk about Kazakhstan in the context of Russia's sphere of influence. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you! Professor Tutumlu, I know that Russia's troops are set to leave Kazakhstan, but still, President Putin must have scored some points here. Did this uprising and its aftermath uh, help Russia expand its orbit of influence, or was it a nothing? Well, here's the thing. I think it's very important to distinguish the interests of Kazakhstan as a country versus the interests of the regime of Tokayev. Well, Putin's regime definitely yeah. saved Tokayev's regime. Uh, it definitely enabled to basically sideline Nazarbayev away from politics, um, even though they are not really able to um, to, re- to shift the, the economic assets among different Types of elites, the elites remain, the assets remain within the hands of pro Nazarbayev elites. 
But at least politically now, Tokayev seems to be the sole ruler. And that uh, uh, basically enables President Putin to have a much more, let's say, personal relations with President Tokayev. We still don't necessarily know how it would translate into um, a particular foreign policy um, mechanisms or particular foreign policy, let's say, changes. But my prediction is that uh, we won't be able to go really too far away from the policy that have been created today. And here is the reason. Um, throughout Nazarbayev's era, Kazakhstan was very famous for what we called multi vectoral foreign policy. And multi-vectoral foreign policy, if you remember the math, right, it implied yeah. some kind of yeah. distancing, equal distancing from major powers in the region. So um, we basically promoted some kind of equal distancing from Russia, China, United States, European Union, uh, and other countries in the region. Um, and we did it in a way that we kind of subcontracted, let's say, various important um, sensitive points for each uh, major um, by giving them more control and participation in some things that they thought strategic. But by doing so, we managed to balance our foreign policy. Just to give you an example. Um, multivectoral foreign policy in case of Kazakhstan implies that, take a look at hydrocarbons. We have Chinese, Russians, and the uh, American slash foreign investors. And so what it implies is that if they or somebody wants to have more control, they have to go and deal with the other majors who may not necessarily <laughs> be happy. And this is the balancing that I'm talking about, that China, for example, today, has much more participation in um, uh, infrastructure. We owe China a lot of money. Um, we actually allow China to uh, engage in various transportation contracts and so on. Um, we have much more political uh, proximity with Russia. We join various organizations. We um, uh, join various initiatives with Russia as well as military cooperation. And then we also have this type of cooperation with um, international NGOs, um, civil society, um, uh, donors, um, and investors from the West that are trying to push Kazakhstan to a different agenda. And this enables us to kind of keep a balance where nobody can actually promote their agenda because they are facing contradictory interests of other countries. So you don't and have one power. You don't have one foreign power dominating uh, Kazakhstan's exactly. uh, trade, internal politics, or internal economic policies. That's pretty exactly. smart. Exactly. Ah, oh, kind of. But now with Putin uh, and Tokayev, we are going to see. Maybe we are going to see a bit more. Um, maybe we are even going to send troops to Ukraine. I mean, this is just my speculation. Or maybe we are going to adopt this very awful law, which is called. Um, this foreign agents law, which means that any mass media that gets funding from abroad has to publicly call itself a foreign agent. And uh, so if somebody gets a grant, right, uh, anything that you post on the media 
would actually start with this warning that this information is provided by a foreign agent, um, which then enables people to to decide. Let let me let me propose this anecdote, see if or, or hypothetical, and you tell me whether or not it it applies to what you're explaining. So let's say mm-hmm. you, Professor mm-hmm. Tutomlu, you get a yes. you get a grant from the Carnegie Endowment. Sure. And you do research and you post some of that on Twitter or whatever it is. Uh, mm-hmm. You have to slap the label, a label foreign agent because you got gr- a grant from. Uh, if American... I am registered, if I'm registered as a media company, yes. Okay. Not... Or if I'm registered as an NGO, yes. Okay. But not so far, not to scholars. Not as an individual. Not as an individual. Not as, not an, as an academic. I see. Um, is that is that a bad thing in the eyes of Kazakh people? Well, you know, there is there was so much hope for some kind of political opening after the events that happened at the beginning of January this year. I mean, there was so much desire for some kind of political change, uh, particularly at least participation in local elections, at least registration of independent political parties, at least ability to actually listen and register independent mass media. And, um, you know, it's very, it would be very important for people who still strive for political change to have these opportunities guaranteed. And for an agent law, um, may potentially be used by the regime in a way that may actually stifle this type of opposition or alternative points of view. So if someone gets a grant, let's say from CNN and they're a reporter or something, they have to do this. Yes. I see. We, we, we talked about uh, Ukraine. You, you mentioned it. And uh, obviously it's a hot spot right now. So is Belarus. Uh, the president of Kazakhstan in asking for help uh, from President Putin invoked an alliance. And I'm using that word loosely. What is that? Is this a post-Soviet alliance? Can it even be called an alliance? (laughs) So a lot of people... Uh, a lot of people in the in the West, you know, uh-huh. they look at the CSTO, the collective security. CSTO? Yes, collective CSTO. security okay. treaty organization, right? So they look at it and they think what comes to mind. Uh, I mean, the NATO. Cold War mentality of NATO, yeah. exactly. But actually, this is not structured as such, right? I mean, they do have the similar clause to Article 4 and 5 in NATO's charter where they have to intervene in case of external attack right um and uh, but 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 they haven't been able to actually intervene in in any country before before before, before january um so even was there existed, a need for it have any oh, yeah, of them they were called i mean so many members of csto were calling them people come and help us Come and help us. And the CSTO always had a kind of an excuse saying that, well, this is a domestic affair. So when things erupted in Kyrgyzstan, uh, there was this uh, intercommunal violence in 2010. Um, Kyrgyzstan actually asked, uh, and in 2011, they asked, can you come please and and create some kind of order and peace? Uh, Because really two communities were on the verge. I mean, there was real, real violence in there. And Russia said, you know, guys, you can actually do it yourself. 
And then in Armenia, in 2020, remember, in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, very Armenian, recent, yeah. Yes. And so Armenians were actually calling CSTO to intervene and help them because they are the members of CSTO. Is Azerbaijan also a member of CSTO? Uh, yes. Okay. And uh, basically, Russia said, you know, this is not an external threat, technically. This territory <laughs> is disputed. And as a result of that, we are not intervening. And um, I think Alexander Kuli, who actually writes about uh, regionalism, and um, yesterday at another event, he was basically saying that um, CSTO is a regional organization to prop up the dictators. And when the CSTO was supposed to come over, I actually called them uh, not necessarily uh, a regional organization, but a quadruple alliance. Remember what how alliance? Europe, a quadruple, a quadruple alliance, a quadruple where alliance. after the Napo- Napoleonic Wars in Europe, oh, that's right. You in had this. 18, you had uh, these four monarchs coming out together just to preserve their absolutist authority and empire against this nationalist Austria, religion. Prussia, Russia. Uh, exactly. British, yeah, and yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. why, that's why to me, it reminded CSTO was like a quadruple alliance that are trying to prop up the dictators. You appreciate that this was a super, ner- super nerdish history moment for the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about the first no, That's okay. I love it. No, go ahead. Go ahead, please. So the quadruple uh, so alliance. That, yeah, and so the, so that's why I think that uh, Russians are not necessarily interested in, or not necessarily Russians, but I mean the alliance itself. And I have to be a, a kind of more careful here, even though Russia dominates the CSTO, uh, but nonetheless, it's it's a it's an organization that includes various countries in it. Um, so wait, I don't think Azerbaijan is in CSTO actually. Um, Interesting. Armenia, probably NATO sure has a lot of, yeah, probably NATO has a lot of influence. I don't know. I don't think it's a member of NATO, but because of their oil no, riches. Not. If you recall, yes. President Bush was there many, the second President Bush many, many years ago, and there were plots to actually assassinate him at a speech he gave. So the West has probably a lot of mm-hmm. influence in Baku. Uh, mm-hmm. Were you surprised that last week, Kazakhstan was not initially able to handle the uprising and they had to call in, uh, you know, help from other countries, including Russia. Yes. I mean, in a way. And here's the reason why. Uh, in 2011, we had another event in the same city of Janauzian that began all this uprising, that, where the uprising started. Um, we had workers, labor unions uh, protesting against uh, for the salary ri- rise for six months. And instead of actually dealing with them, the government kind of just left them out there. But somebody gave the order to shoot on the Independence Day. We still don't know if this was the government. We, I mean, who gave the order to shoot? Who were these people who killed about 16 workers? with the real bullets, wow. it's, it's, it's a matter of history. And so my initial understanding was that probably Kasim Jamar Tokayev simply did not want to use you know, our own military against the people so that he's, his hands are not really bloody or dirty. And he wanted to bring in this alliance in order to keep the order inside the country and somebody else to do the dirty job. 
But when actually we started to see that CSTO, the mandate of CSTO was so limited and the amount of troops was so limited, it began clear to me that probably Tokayev didn't really, was not really sure that the army and law enforcement are actually on his side because during the demonstrations, a lot of police officers joined the protesters in different country, in different parts of the country. Um, and maybe in Almaty in particular, he wasn't really sure that this type of law enforcement bodies can potentially be reliable. And in addition to that, when the bandits appeared on the street, so we had the, for the first three days from 2nd of January up until the 4th of 5th, the demonstrations were relatively peaceful. Then the government started to use force and then violence appeared. And then some type of armed military guys came out and we have no idea who they are, but they were able to basically attack the airport, attack uh, different government buildings, attack um, even the, the prisons. And as a result of that, um, Tokayev basically had to call CSTO. At least this seemed like this. But why exactly police was absent on the street or the law enforcement bodies were absent on the street? Who gave the order for that law, for the law enforcement bodies to retreat? This is still not clear. That's, that's really intriguing. And what's also equally um, puzzling is that the force, uh, and, and I'm sharing with you what I hear, read about in, mm -hmm. in, in, in our news here in America, uh, was rather small. I think 2,000 Russian troops. Exactly. So that, yes. that really, if, if, if this was a, this, this, this morphed into a real revolution, 2,000 troops wouldn't really cut it. I guess it was just the start of something. Perhaps more than anything, it was the show of force that was important uh, for uh, Kazakhstan's president. Um, let's take a break here. Uh, stay with me and Professor Tutomlu as we get into the perspective. Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news, and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? Professor Tomlu, an interesting development here is that China also offered to send troops to Kazakhstan. And I, and I think this is the first such a move by China. You can correct me if I'm uh, wrong on this, but how is important was this? Is this, is this a big deal or no? <laughs> Well, there were many interesting events just before I get to China. I mean, mm -hmm. we have actually had the um, uh, Taliban government issuing a statement for both parties to, ex to express restraint and not to resort to violence. And, and, and Taliban <laughs> is an authority yes. on, on restraint. Oh. <laughs> exactly. And that actually came out to our Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I mean, that was I really love something, it. right? Wow. Um, Go Taliban. So, I, I can't, yeah. No so comments. Yes, no comments. Um, exactly. I mean, uh, China was basically um, very much interested in having a relatively stable Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. Not only because we owe a lot of money there, 
but also because, and it has very strong economic uh, control, control over certain industries, um, but because um, the border of Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan borders a relatively volatile region called Xinjiang, yeah. and uh, this region is populated by Turkic people mostly. Um, the Uyghurs? Including Kazakhs, the okay. Uyghurs. Um, uh, and uh, as a result of that, they uh, wanted independence. And it's a sizable amount of people, if I'm not mistaken, like 40 million people, but you can you have uh, people in the University of Indiana studying that. So, I mean, they can tell you more about it, but the idea And the here geography is that, of that province is actually large. It's a big chunk yes. in Western China, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. and we hear about it all the time in America in, in our news. Good, and so as a result of that, we didn't necessarily. I mean, I think China didn't necessarily want to see unstable Kazakhstan because it mm -hmm. can inspire certain instability in uh, Xinjiang as well. Um, and so that's well, that was the reason why they offered troops. And obviously, they they have this CSTO, the uh, Shanghai. Uh, um, no. Not, uh, sorry, SCO, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. SCO. Um, SCO, yes. Which was established initially as a kind of um, uh, ceasefire slash um, an agreement to ensure uh, better trust, let's say, among the, the, the people along the border. So um, the initial pitch of creating the Shanghai Cooperation Organization was basically to keep the troops 100 kilometers away from the border, um, uh, to ensure that there are constant communications, uh, and uh, overall that both countries actually feel relatively secure, or all countries in the, in the um, organization. And later on, it began to acquire different other economic, political, including military cooperation. And so China actually had legitimate, so to say, <laughs> legitimate within the international organization that they yeah. created, regional organization, they had the legitimate ability to send troops as well. Could we look at this or interpret it as the beginning of competition between China and Russia in Central Asia, or we didn't we shouldn't read too much into it. You're shaking your head and the answer is no, right? <laughs> yes, it's no. But this is a very famous trope of most of the American uh, specialists uh, uh -huh. or American watchers of Central Asia because, um, and it's very interesting because I, I just recently uh, published an article about the Western gaze on Central Asia. And um, because the majority of people who analyze Central Asia come from the Sovietology background, I remember uh -huh. this is the part of science that kind of became very um, useless uh, after the breakup of the Soviet Union. Yeah. So they still try to read politics from the perspective of geopolitics, right? They, they try to read Central Asia from the perspective of geopolitics, which implies that for them, it's all, Central Asia is just a field that doesn't have people in it. And you have these great <laughs> majors such as China and Russia and the United States that are trying to basically ensure that their interests are fulfilled. And this is unfortunately a very mistaken view, which doesn't provide American lawmakers actually inadequate information um, because it doesn't explain how politics is played on the ground at all. It's as if uh, uh, peoples and governments in Central Asia don't have their own agency there. Uh, it kind of Absolutely. reminds me of the great game between the Russian and British empires over 
uh, what used to be Persia, the modern day Iran. Interesting. Um, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Kazakhstan, <laughs> I know we discussed this, this is difficult. What would it be? If you want to do two points, you're welcome to do two, two points. Yeah. Especially since you're from Kazakhstan. I guess I would just finish with the fact that Kazakhstan is not a field <laughs> of <laughs> geopolitics, <laughs> but it's it's a it's a country with uh, uh, lovely people, um, absolutely marvelous nature, um, wonderful cuisine, and uh, just just a country that is worth visiting. Wonderful. Um... Look forward to the opportunity to doing that. Seriously, my wife and I have talked about exotic travel, exotic for us. We haven't been to that part of the world. And, uh, and when the opportunity comes, we'd love to do it. Professor Tutumlu, thank you so much for educating me and our <laughs> listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, you. if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you. Thank you so much. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News.